course the AC went on in the living room seconds before I hit record, so we'll see what that sounds like. Yes, this is, uh, by the way, a drug cast. No, that's not <laughs> what it is at all. Where we, we talk, talk about, about hard drugs. <laughs> the thing is, people won't even be able to tell if you're joking or not. We are not joking. So we are joking. Ourselves. We are very much. Neither of us. Neither of us are are promoting the use of of drugs amongst oh, our never. listenership. Uh, stay, be cool, stay in school. <laughs> Uh, I mean, once you get around to Stacy and the Bad Girls, which I think is book 87, if you haven't already, you'll learn uh, about substance abuse. I already know about substance abuse because I read the California Diaries. Thank oh, you. Oh, that's true. No, no, you're not. You're not wrong. Uh, the life changing Dawn Diary 3 in which Dawn becomes history's greatest monster and Ducky maybe has the best night of his life, but we don't find out. <laughs> But this is not a California Diaries podcast. What is this? This is uh, okay. So uh, buckle up. This <laughs> don't, Buttercup. Don't know what's going on. This is a this is Pizza Toast. This is a podcast about uh, Babysitters Club adaptations, uh, ephemera, etc. First Netflix, first uh, second HBO. Now the 1995 movie. But apparently we, and I'll clarify who we are in a second. Haven't actually talked about the movie yet. Uh, we heard from a listener <laughs> that even though we have now spent five episodes covering the 1995 movie, The Babysitter's Club, we've never actually covered the movie of The Babysitter's yes. Club. We we talked, we did a preamble mm-hmm. where I hadn't even seen it yet. Mm-hmm. We did a, a commentary on it, a commentary track yeah. where we talked over the movie. Mm-hmm. We did uh, a, a, an episode about the trailer. <laughs> an entire episode about the trailer. We did do that. And we talked about Jackie Rudowski. We talked about Mr. Jackie Rudowski. Talk about the lack of Jackie Rudowski. And then we uh, talked about one of the junior novelizations of the Babysitter's Club. And, we, and when, so in, in, in all that, we talked about a lot of stuff that didn't happen in the movie. And we talked about a lot of stuff that wasn't included in the book. But I guess we've never actually just talked about the movie, like the the movie. No, and it feels like we should probably talk about that, and we should probably clarify who we are now that we've said what this is and what we're going to do. Uh, my name is Christy Admiral. And my name is Phil Gonzalez. Yeah, we're just uh, two friends hanging out, uh, rapping about the Babysitter's Club and not talking about the 1995 movie. But Avoiding not hanging the out elephant together. In the room. We've never actually been in the same room together. Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't, don't ruin the illusion. Yeah. This is a Babysitter's Club podcast. We discuss the Babysitter's Club. We talk about the Babysitter's Club and one of the hallmarks of all uh, Babysitter's Club fans' lives, that's not true, but of a certain age, is the 1995 movie, which uh, mm. I would uh, because it la- made so little money, Yeah, I don't think it made the Babysitter's Club any bigger of a part of culture than it already was. I feel like all the Babysitter's Club movie did was briefly appease a bunch of Babysitter's Club fans. I think that's exactly not what it set out to do, but what it was able to accomplish. What we should do is, I don't know if anyone actually listens to this show, but I I would love to know if anyone's experience with the Babysitter's Club started with this movie. I'm very curious. There have to be people who didn't have any like cultural touchstone, but then saw this movie. My guess is this was 
the vibe I get is this was a sleepover movie. Mm. And I can see there being a group of girls and one being very into the Babysitter's Club or maybe two of them being very into the Babysitter's Club and kind of trying to rope their friends into enjoying it. So my question is then, if this was a sleepover movie, if this is a movie that like, one one girl would would rent. I, I say girl. It could have been a little boy. Yeah, I I am definitely gendering in this case because this was a book series marketed toward girls. It is a book series about girls, but there were boys who read it. Oh, of course. But uh, if we're talking sleepovers, I mean, probably more little girls than little boys in 1995 mm-hmm. were yeah. were trying to force this on their friends. Yeah. Uh, do you think it worked? That's a really good question, and I'm going to go ahead and say, no, I don't think it did. I don't think anyone who watched this movie in a vacuum would then latch on and think, hey, I want to watch, or I want to read a hundred books about these girls. I want to do that. I want to explore the inner lives of these 11 to 13 year olds. Yeah. Seeing this movie and saying, I would love it if I could spend several lifetimes with these children because that is what the books cover is 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 in real time several several human lifetimes uh these perpetually 13 year old girls uh in their 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 fun time foibles uh yeah i can't imagine this being a this being a big seller for people even though the person who informed us that we hadn't actually talked about the movie yet uh also said that they much prefer this version of the babysitter's club to the hbo series which is really interesting to me just because i have such affection for the hbo one having watched it recently really liking how close it was to the books without actually using plots from the books in contrast with this which the basic skeleton of it like the like when the day camp plot could very well have been a super special, right? Right. Like, as a, and there are uh, books in the series where people work at day camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's the Hawaii one where half of them are working at a day camp and the other half are in Hawaii, which seems exceptionally rude. It might be the Europe one. Whichever <laughs> one it is, that is very rude to the girls who get stuck in Stony Brook. But I digress. Uh, this doesn't feel like a Babysitter's Club book nearly to the same extent as the HBO series does. Yeah, and when I asked this person why they preferred (laughs) the movie to the HBO series, it was because the acting was so much better in the movie. And I actually, now that I've watched the movie again, I don't know if I fully agree that the acting's better in the movie. It's filmed better. Yeah, it... I had not thought about this, actually, because I don't think the movie is exceptionally well acted. I don't think we get to the point of anyone's performance approaching greatness until the Netflix series, if I'm being completely honest. And in that case, I would say, okay, Sochi Gomez does an amazing job. Like She's Mm -hmm. a really good young actor. I always forget the name of the girl who plays Christy, but she is like the... Sophie... Sophie Grace. Sophie Grace. Sophie Grace. She is so, so good. I think about moments of her performance, like, still, like, they stick in my head. I don't know how... It's almost apples and oranges to me with the HBO versus the 95 show. But 
I can't pinpoint hmm. why that is. I think the HBO show, the girls really all have a handle on the character they're playing, whereas they only have so much time to do that in the movie. And I'm not sure that any of them particularly nail it. Yeah, ensemble movies are a tricky beast. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And I think there's very few writers and directors who can pull off an ensemble film that introduces all the characters as opposed to like, you know, like a, I don't know, MCU movie that they've already been established for the audience. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of like the first X-Men movie, like things like that, where everyone kind of gets their moment and gets a little moment to shine. Uh, uh, that, that's a tough, that's a tough nut to crack when it comes to making a, a movie. You know, it is. And weirdly you say ensemble films and I know that there are, <laughs> much more important, like capital I important films in history than this. And it's also cheating because it's very loosely based on Shakespeare. But another Larissa Olenek movie, uh, 10 Things I Hate About You, is probably my Mm. favorite teen movie. And one of the reasons is every teen who is featured for more than maybe five minutes of screen time is very good like everyone establishes themselves right away within about three lines you know what that character's deal is and yeah they're all stock characters so it's not and the babysitters club they have their stock characters but it is not like the standard character types in the same way so it's harder it's harder to do and Netflix, they had time to build the characters. They give each character their own spotlight episode Mm. straight away. And while they're in the spotlight, they also have kind of a little bit in the background or interacting with the main character. Uh, They can further build on what they've already, like the foundation they've laid with the others. And I think one of the problems the movie has, so... Uh, for those who haven't seen the movie, and if you're listening to part six of a discussion about the Big Serious Club movie, and we haven't touched on what happens in the movie really, and you're still listening to the show, good on you. I'm Yeah, what are you doing here? Thanks. Yeah, this is amazing. Like, wow, there's so many other things you can listen to. Uh, so the movie begins with Christy introducing all of the characters in narration. And she's like, I'm Christy, and I have a babysitter's club. And here's my friend Marianne, and she's like this. And here's my friend Dawn, and she does this. And this is Stacy, and she's from New York, and she thinks she's still there. And <laughs> Mallory started writing her first novel when she was 11, and she hopes to have it finished by 11 and a half. And Jesse just dances through life. And you're like, great, there's our characters. But it feels like, oh, and Marianne, who knows? Oh, yeah, you miss Claudia, too, which oh, is telling. Can Claudia make a fork and do a thing? Yes, she can. And it she feels like it. they wrote this script and were like, we'll start it with the narration because that's what the books do. And then felt like, well, we got that out of the way. We don't really have to do anything with most of those characters anymore because we've already told you what they're like. So we don't actually have to show you. And... The books get away with that because, as you said, there's a hundred of them. There's over a hundred of them. And so they can do that in the beginning and be like, let's spend 20 pages talking about who all these characters are. Because you're going to get to another book later on that really fleshes out Jesse. Mm -hmm. But, Mm -hmm. But the movie, like just sort of rests on its laurels after that and just expects you to sort of just go along with it. Whereas if you're looking at a movie like, I don't know, Knives Out, (laughs) which is slightly better made, let's say, than the babysitter Just a little. That's a movie with like 15 characters who, granted, are all confined basically to one place. 
Uh, so you don't have a whole lot of running around, mm. but that does a really good job. You you get to know who all these characters are in brief and very quick introductions. They say, as you said, three lines and you're like, I know who this person is. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's actually a more efficient way and a stronger way to introduce a character than by saying, that's Marianne. She cries a lot. And you're mm. like, okay. And then you just have this poor girl like having to look sad the rest of the movie. Yeah. Having them talk really helps. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a big part of it. The only person we really hear saying anything, and it's a huffing noise more than uh, any actual words, is Dawn getting mad about somebody littering. And honestly, that does give you more than anyone else is, is putting out there. She's wearing a little knit hat, too. She does. Oh, the clothing in this movie. I guess we could go over what the plot of it is if, if people haven't it figured it out from the context yeah. clues. I, I would say the most telling previous episode would actually probably la be last week's when we talked about the novelization and all the things they left out. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but a quick rundown of the movie is... Yeah. You have your main plot, which we discussed last week. The girls all start a summer camp for the kids, in the process of which they irritate their next-door neighbor, played by... Uh, uh, Ellen Burstyn. Ellen Burstyn. And uh, ultimately make it up to her and live happily ever after and then the and the camp isn't very successful like that's that's your that's that plot it just like yeah. told in the book yeah and that is like that's all that happens with that plot in the movie too it's a little bit more complicated like you have koki mason who is the mean girl of the babysitters club series mm -hmm. trying to sabotage the camp that's one detail yeah. trying to sabotage Missy camp because she loves logan she loves logan yeah so she wants to get the entire club back uh there is a throwaway line about how they used to be friends with Koki and then she got too cool or something. Yeah, I can't believe that. Which is a pretty that. normal middle school thing to have happen, but I refuse you to don't believe that really... girl ever had friends. <laughs> you know, she has two friends and they're the funniest people in this They movie. are the best characters in the show. <laughs> BB and Grace. Grace being a real character from the series, BB being an invention of, of the screenwriter. And you know what? That's okay. An it's invention of a genius. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, yeah. So yeah, so the, we have the Koki subplot, and they're constantly trying to like pull tricks on the babysitters and getting them like thrown back in their face. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the we have a thing where the babysitters get their hands on a a, a greenhouse that they're going to try to convert into a new babysitting babysitters club clubhouse. Yeah, it's going to replace Claudia's room as the place that they meet, which also seems in. I guess it's not that inconvenient. It's pretty near Marianne and Dawn's house. It's mostly that they have to do this full renovation, and there are several scenes in which they are renovating the greenhouse. Uh, ultimately, that greenhouse ends up going to their neighbor, Mrs. Haberman, who yes. is trying to get them to adhere to some kind of law, uh, <laughs> be it formal or otherwise, because they really are ruining her summer. Uh, and right. It's, She's the most sympathetic character in this movie. Like as a as a grown up myself now, who has terrible neighbors, I the, she is the one I have really latched onto. Uh, the and the greenhouse is they have to like pr prove to a board that they've fixed it up and yeah, it has to be up to code, but we don't know what that code is, but that's fine. Yeah. Also, it's incredibly hot inside all the time because it's a greenhouse, and they would have no phone, which is like it seems like a problem. A problem. Uh, <laughs> Considering and that's the basis of their club. Yeah, and the, I, that's one of the reasons it ends up going to Mrs. Haberman, although it is also like a kind apology on their part. Like, 
Because they ruined her flowers. They ruined her flowers. They ruined her summer. They ruined her whole summer. They ruined uh, her summer. And there were no more problems that summer. <laughs> Mrs. Haberman, of course, being like the, the not a character from the books, but typical of the books in that there is frequently a middle-aged woman who is a little put off by the babysitters. It's very strange, but it is a trope of the series. And that feel that whole plot does feel of a piece with, as I said, a super special. Like there's mm. different aspects of it. Like Cokie Mason getting involved. Maybe she gets a chapter. She's definitely gotten one before, which is crazy. Right. But yeah. Done um, better, however, I think in the HBO series with the long lost sister subplot. Yes. The the, the mystery. What was the, the Did this person murder her sister? I can't remember. <laughs> was, the, was that the missing jewels? Yes. And or, no, it was the secret passage. The secret passage. That's right. Yeah. The uh, missing the jewels was uh, accusing that woman we had never heard of. That of horrible woman. Yeah. She may have been innocent, but she was guilty in our hearts. Julie. 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 <laughs> the great Julie. See, this. so this movie has a couple of Julies in that there's characters who are treated as normal, but they're not. Uh, but yes. no one to the extent of Julie. No. Uh, and also, like, the HBO series had mystery. And I love... I love that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, what the movie does is it brings in Christie's father. Uh, not, I mean, I say unfortunately, but what happens is Christie's father shows up and becomes like the like the biggest plot in the movie. And that, I think, takes up so much time mm -hmm. that they can't devote it to the other girls. And if you had somehow worked out a plot that actually involved all the girls... Like that could have been emotionally resonant. You wouldn't have need to throw in hot dad. Yeah, Patrick, Patrick, yeah. our guy. Um, that's the thing. Like the greenhouse plot could have been, and the summer camp plot could have had more of an emotional hook. Uh, one of the subplots running through the movie that is directly related to Patrick being there is Claudia. Uh, is in summer school and needs to get a certain grade in bio in order to stay in the babysitter's club by her parents' uh, edict. And Chrissy, like, assigns herself to help Claudia with this, but then is distracted by Patrick. Right. And the thing you said is an entire plot happens around Claudia. Yes. Which is true. Like, she is one of the characters getting shortest shrift here, um, just by having more screen time than, like, a Mallory or a, Mallory or a Jesse. And what's what's funny is like and unfortunate is that Claudia being one of two characters of color in the like main like ensemble of the stories, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's Claudia and Jesse. Um, and the fact that they would give her such short shrift isn't a good look and no. that they kind of make her background to her own story is also not a good look it just it just kind of keeps compounding that there's this that there's this character who seems interesting but all the other girls just kind of talk over her and talk about her yeah it feels bad and it, we're also distracted from claudia from her struggle not just by the patrick plot but by the stacy and luca plot which yes. ends up being i'd say if we were talking about what's most important here it goes patrick luca entire backdrop of movie summer camp yes <laughs> like which is it just to say like the arc of the movie does sort of begin and end with this or not sort of literally begins and end with ends with the summer camp mm -hmm. but patrick shoves his way in there and then luca does the same and when i say that i mean uh stacy meets 
the cousin of one of her charges. And he is a handsome, older European boy. Yes. And uh, they they fall in love. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's it. And they head off to New York together. And that's where Luca discovers that Stacy is 13 years old. 13 to his 17. To his 17. And but he'll be back next year when he's 18 and then they can seriously date or something. I can't Yeah, it's, it's very like she says, I'll be 14 when you come back because he does get he gets very mad when he finds out mm-hmm. in contrast with him being very understanding and sympathetic about her diabetes, which is what she's actually worried about uh, more than the age thing. But when she reassures him she'll be 14 next year, he says, I know, which <laughs> makes it worse than it already was. But we got to remember that Stacy's only criteria for a boy is that he be handsome. Yeah. And that he can see past her diabetes uh, and still appreciate her, despite the fact that she is only a very attractive young woman from New York yeah. City. And they did, they cast. A really cute girl for this. I, obviously, all of them are cute. They're they're film actresses, like. Right. <laughs> but but they cast a girl who, to me, aside from Mallory, because that is a very close physical match, is maybe the closest physical match to what I have imagined of the mm. character. And they do that again with the Netflix series. And a friend of mine, when we were talking about the ninety five movie, and she had seen it only, or they had seen, my friend had seen it only one time which was when they were a kid and it was uh, like their problem with it at the time, they're my age, was they could not separate their images in their head of the uh, of the characters from what was in the movie and could not uh, did not like seeing that reflected incorrectly <laughs> in their eyes. Now watching the Netflix series, they pinpointed what is missing from the Stacy character in the movie is the awkwardness of Stacy. Mm. And she is a very, like, they always call her sophisticated, but she is insecure. And this was particularly well-crafted, I think, in the Netflix series with how she interacts with Sam, how she um, develops the crush on the lifeguard, who is very dismissive of her, and then eventually kisses, like, the nice young boy who is her age. Like, it's it's better. It's better. I forgot about that episode. I forgot there was the, the... We are all going to the beach episode where they had to dress in the warmest clothes because it was clearly ice cold on it the beach. It was clearly ice time. cold and they could also avoid putting the girls in bathing suits. Right. Is, they're both very good reasons. No, I agree. There is a... In the books, you get told that Stacy's super sophisticated, but that's always mm-hmm. by another girl. And you do like have to remember that she's a child and yeah. we're seeing the books through the eyes of her peers. So if we were going to objectively watch what happens in a Babysitter's Club book, it would be more like the Netflix series, which is a bunch of obvious children <laughs> who think they're sophisticated and think that they're like, I don't know, that that their friend can pass for an adult. But if you're an adult, you just be like, this is a little child. And yeah. uh, and I do agree that's that's something that the Netflix series does well. But I don't know. Something about the movie, to me, the movie girls, 
I can't even remember what the HBO series Stacy looked like now. Oh, yeah. She's very off from what I would have uh, what is imagined. She? She... Who is she? Oh, now I remember. Now yeah, she I wears remember. a lot of headbands. That's right. Her that's hair, right. Uh, her hair looks like it is described in the books. Mm-hmm. Like it is like a body wave or, or a combo of perm body wave at all times. But that wasn't how I visualized pretty hair by the time I was <laughs> reading the books. Yeah, I'd say that Stacy. I don't know, in the movie, it is funny that they give her so much screen time mm-hmm. when Dawn is right there, like an established actor, uh, a fan favorite, who yeah. you would think that they would sort of try, okay, let's let's get some more attention on the TV star. Yeah, you have Dawn, you have Larissa Olenek, and you have Zelda Harris, who's literally been in a Spike Lee movie. Right who has experience with like an auteur (laughs) and yet yet we get almost none of her and yeah i wonder about the direction of this because it was directed by somebody who had never directed well and obviously like we've gotten the oral history of this show yes we have gotten through that i want to know more I want to talk to the writers. I want to know what kind of drafts this went through. I want to know, like, what was the process of deciding how to assemble this story? Did they, mm-hmm. you know, did they use the Bible and just sort of build a a, a a tale around that? Because it's enough like a Babysitter's Club story that it passes muster, but it also does come across as we're going to focus on Stacy because we can have a relationship storyline mm-hmm. with her and the girls mm-hmm. will like that. And then we'll get some real like tear jerking moments with Christy and her dad. That'll appeal to like the girls who just want to go see movies because of all the drama and they want to cry about things with their friends. And then everyone else is going to be there for a laugh and give us a few yucks. Yeah. And it feels like that's what a studio would say. We want a romance and we want some family drama, everything else, have kids fall down. Have a little boy hit himself in the leg with a baseball bat. <laughs> I knew have that was going to come up eventually. Throw a jelly donut over a fence. We'll get a lot of. You can get Ellen Burstyn. Great, that's great. I'll call like that. Just seems like that was kind of their their thing. And I I want to talk to the screenwriter. I want to know like what was this process? In much the same way, we want to talk to whoever <laughs> scheduled the filming dates of the HBO series. <laughs> There are all these insiders that we don't know how to get in touch with. And you'd think in the internet age, it would be easier than ever. Like the time I tweeted about how I liked the costume costume design on Westworld and someone pointed out to me, you could ask the costumer about where she got that dress. Yeah. (laughs) She's on Twitter. Turns out she made it. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I was able to find one that was pretty close to it eventually. Yeah, I have a lot of process questions here, even though we have like the oral history is comprehensive and it hints at things, but the screenwriter is not featured in the oral history. And she, I think is the one I have the most questions for of anyone. Yes. So the screenplay, and we, I'm sure we mentioned this before. The screenplay was written by Darlene Young, Mm -hmm. uh, who has a bunch of credits to her name. Uh, She wrote the screenplay to the movie, little darlings, which is probably like, one of the reasons you would ask her to write a Babysitter's Club screenplay, because Little Darlings, for those of you who haven't seen it, is uh, a movie about a girl's summer camp. 
Yeah. Uh, no, it makes sense. Yeah. Starring Chrissy McNichol and Tatum O'Neill and the very young uh, Cynthia Nixon. And it's actually a really strong movie. I really like the movie Little Darlings. I think it's it's well-directed and amazingly performed. And so I can see where they'd be like, someone like that, someone who can... Who can uh you know like write for write for teenage girls, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. everything else by her she did a lot. It's mostly TV movies and teleplays, uh, except for uh, except for this. Yeah, a lot of and she given- even wrote the screenplay to the looks like Little Darlings TV series, uh, starring Pamela Adlon. So, <laughs> so given the structure of the movie, yeah, and also the length. I can understand, like, I can see the translation from, or, like, the leap from TV movie to this. Right. Because it's so short. The movie's very short. Somehow everything happens in the span of under 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's, I'm trying, yeah, I'm, I'm just so puzzled about this. Like, I have no answers for you because I'm not talking to her about this. Right. But it's it feels weirdly constructed the the summer camp connection makes a lot of sense like mm. maybe i don't know who reached out to who first but maybe she thought hey this seems like a thing that i have visited like this is revisiting a theme or they were like who's the best in the biz at summer camp movies <laughs> 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 who can who can spin me a yarn about And it this? was it was either her or whoever wrote meatballs. Yeah. <laughs> or space camp, but minus the space. <laughs> yeah, it was in most camp movies are a little racier than you would want in your babysitter's club. Even though they mention in several books that they have watched the movie Meatballs. Uh, it's so weird when i ended up looking up what meatballs was eventually i think i had to ask my parents at the time because i would have read these in a pre uh pre-internet age for the yeah. most part uh it's not something that they should be showing uh, a bunch of children but but it does remind me of the fact that when i was a kid especially in the 80s in late 80s you watched a lot of stuff you weren't supposed to. That like, is true. We rented and watched Police Academy. That was not a good thing for little kids to watch. And we were like, whatever. I saw Revenge of the Nerds oh, the year it came out. Yeah. I was eight. <laughs> <laughs> I had seen uh, all three Naked Gun movies by the time I turned 10. Those are not appropriate <laughs> revenge of the nerds yeah that's the it that was, was a, it's hard to watch no that's a that's a legendary movie in the uh oh my unmarried name was gordon uh it's a legendary movie in the gordon household because somehow on one of the days when my father and one of my brothers were like having a guy's day just the two of them mm-hmm. uh my brother convinced my dad that they should rent revenge of the nerds it was a, it, it, he was maybe 10 at the time. It was not a great idea. And they still referenced back to it every once in a while. Like, oh, that was a terrible idea. But clearly they were both very proud that they had done it. That's an R-rated movie in every sense of the word. And what's funny is it went from being an R-rated movie to a sequel that I think was like PG-13 mm-hmm. to a series of made-for-TV family films. Revenge of the Nerds 3 and 4 were made-for-TV and aimed at like like preteens and teenagers. It was They were like goofy family comedies. And right. I'm like, that first movie, man, that's a rough one. That's some... 
that's some dark stuff right there. That's but then I think a- the police academy went in the same direction too. It went from hard R first movie to like a kind of middle ground sequel to like family films to animated cartoon series. I think Naked Gun movies are all PG-13, which is why we could watch them, because my parents skewed very close to the MPAA, even though having now watched like documentaries on the MPAA and read enough about like the FCC and that sort of thing, I know that it's all about like cut this one thing and we'll give you this thing. Yeah, it's all it's all a mess and a lie. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, this movie is the babysitter's club movie is pg which makes no, sense it, it makes total sense because what else could it be like it can't be it can't be g necessarily because probably somebody says oh my god or something like that at some mm. point and they're and, not disney so they're not going to get the automatic g in the 90s yes and uh that was a thing that happened wasn't it remember what, when pirates wasn't of the caribbean it, came wasn't out it just like was disney like, could oh, do man. anything they wanted in a movie and they'd get the automatic g yes yes uh, I just remember it being a sea change when Pirates of the Caribbean got a PG-13. Everyone was like, this is the first major Disney release. Uh, I remember when Black Cauldron got a PG. Oh. And that was a huge deal. Like, it was so dark that they couldn't give it a G. And many Disney, like, higher-ups were like, that's the reason it bombed, is because we released a PG movie. And most other worlds like, no, you, 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 it bombed because you made a movie that appealed to absolutely no one. Yeah, I don't think that's the reason. <laughs> Except for Philip Gonzalez in 1985. <laughs> he loved Gurgi. Of course. Have I even seen The Black Cauldron? Is highly likely that I haven't seen The Black Cauldron. Oh, really? Yeah, it's today's the day. It's worth watching. It's worth seeing just to be like, wow, they... They really thought they had something there. That's like so Disney going hard fantasy, like D&D t- style fantasy. And I, you guys can't see this, but my eyes just lit up. Like and, and being like, yeah, like dead bodies rising from the grave and like magic swords and witches and and curses and baubles and like flying dragons and you're like all right this sounds good then you watch it it makes no sense (laughs) like they took three novels three novels and compressed them into like an 80 minute movie it's not how it works guys unless you're making the babysitters club where you take a hundred novels and compress (laughs) them down to their essence so i actually do feel as though we've now covered most of what happens in this movie that is worth talking about um yeah uh, the Patrick stuff comes to a head at the end of the movie when the entire movie, uh, Patrick has convinced Christy to keep this a secret from everyone, yeah. minus Marianne, who saw him as he arrived in town. So Patrick is Christy's estranged father who barely even writes to her every year if he does that. And he doesn't want anyone to know that he's there. He's hoping to get a job in town. Um that doesn't pan out ultimately and he ditches christy on the night of her birthday like that is uh he treats her uh very unfairly the entire movie she gets to yell at him at one point which is great yeah uh it's probably her best acting in the movie um and i think that's where it falls apart for me mm. because ultimately the, the the message of the movie seems to be like <clears throat> at least for christy seems to be 
this aberrant thing has happened in your life and it's completely thrown the, your equilibrium off. No longer are you the together reliable one. You're you're doing something completely out of character. You're keeping secrets from your friends. It's causing you to like have to lie and sneak around behind your friends and your family's back and you're having to tell lie after lie just to keep this thing going on and it's unfair because an adult's making you do this. Uh, and in the end of the day, that adult doesn't even have your best interest at heart. Uh, they're using you emotionally and they dis disappear once again and you're left with the fallout you have to apologize to your friends and you learn you know like you've got to be honest with your friends you've got to be honest with your family you got to trust them they trust you and and if you say you're going to do something do it if you make a mistake people will forgive you but ultimately your friends and your family are there to love you and support you and you should tell them the truth like that's a lot for that mm -hmm. story the my problem with it is that this is the babysitter's club movie and they do that thing that I have a big problem with in movie adaptations of major properties, which is instead of making a movie adaptation of the property, they make a movie adaptation of the property and then throw in a thing that makes it an aberration of the property. Like they make the second or third movie that they should have made, which mm -hmm. is we're going to disrupt the the status quo. Whereas as an average viewer, you don't even know what the status quo is. You're watching a movie where Christy is suddenly acting out of character, but you don't have a Christy established base for her to not like as a as a first time viewer, you're like, I guess this is what this character is like. Everyone seems upset at her, but why do I like this person in the first place? I've never gotten to know her otherwise. That's a really that's a really good point. Because like I'm a I have gone from uh, anti-Christy to like reluctant fan of Christy. <laughs> I would say even over the course of recording this show, uh, it's just been a real journey for me. <laughs> uh, like 20, 25 years removed from reading these for the first time. <laughs> but it is true that she is not, she's not particularly likable in this because all you see her do is lie to everyone she knows. And yes, uh, now I can recognize she's being manipulated. It's yeah. very easy to see that. But we also don't know about Christy's strength of character. Christy is blunt. It is a, it is both a blessing and a curse for her how upfront she is about everything. She doesn't really... She's She d tries not to come across as sensitive. But part of that is she isn't particularly sensitive. She's very right. strong and strong-willed and you just don't really see the contrast in this movie yeah and the only times you see her the only very brief sequence where you see her acting like herself is her introducing her new great idea and that kind of it all comes back to why was this not the plot of the movie with maybe a tiny ro couple romance subplots because we do have like we have a kiss between marianne and logan at one point yeah. A weird one. We have uh, the Luca stuff, which doesn't need to be there. That could be cut out completely. And we have the Ellen Gray stuff, too, which we haven't even touched <laughs> oh, on. Oh, God. Right, right. So much. But yeah. We do hate Alan Gray at this point. We hate movie. Alan Gray. Um, but it reminds me of. Uh... Oh, what was it? Oh, uh, this is going to seem like a really weird comparison, but the movie Cabin in the Woods. Oh, uh, yeah. Movie Cabin in the Woods. I enjoy it for what it is. It's not my favorite movie, but it's got some really nice stuff I like in it. And mm -hmm. But one of my biggest issues with it has always been the whole plot is that these kids are being affected by whatever set up by the government to act a certain way that is out of their own characters. Mm -hmm. But you never get to spend enough time with them in their actual characters to appreciate 
that they're acting out of character. You have to go right. completely off what the other characters say, which is like, she's never been this dumb before. Or like, mm-hmm. boy, he's never been that aggressive before. And you're like, oh, I guess I guess I'll take your word for it. And that's kind of what happens in this is we only have the other characters word. What I think I would have paid money to see is just do an adaptation of the first six books. Just compress them all down. Leave out Mallory and Jesse. Mm-hmm. Give us... Give us Christie's great idea through Christie's fantabulous day or whatever that book big, is called. Big, but close. Christie's big day. Have that be the arc. Like, have it be like she's come up with this idea and they've, over the course of like a school year or whatever, have this babysitter's club. They each have their kind of like adventure. Claudia has Mimi. Claudia is making some bad grades and uh, Marianne's <laughs> dealing with her dad and... Uh, you'd have to like pick and choose those moments but then you could have like still have that christy arc you want yeah uh that that the netflix series did yeah i was gonna and, say you're kind of de- like what you're describing is not dissimilar to the netflix series no not at a all a little longer to get there than the, than you would in a movie obviously and they they kind of they pulled some things from some books and pushed them ahead of when they happened in the series. Like there was a couple additional episodes in there before Christie's big day. Mm-hmm. But that said, it is a really, that is a really good way to distill everything down to like a two hour movie and not two hours. Like two hours is very long, but you know what I mean? It would like, be very long. Ugh, I, I have this firm belief that no movie should be longer than 90 minutes. And I've been watching a lot of spy movies, and the more recent they get, the longer they become. And it is just, no matter how interesting a movie is the whole time, it can be such a slog to be sitting in one place for two hours. But... Uh, I, I I have no hard and fast rule on how long a movie should be, because I've sat through some 80-minute movies that seemed like they were forever. And I've sat through some three-hour movies that I'm just like, where'd the time go? Yeah, yeah. I've, no, I've had the same thing. I just But a Babysitter's Club movie should never clock in at more than 90 minutes. <laughs> I think 90 minutes is the is the golden time for such a, for such a thing. Yeah, like that's the Now, if I can shift gears really quick before we finish up here. Please do. I did some research into a few of these locations. <laughs> and I'm so glad you did. Uh I was I was actually rewatching parts of the movie and we talked about the town directory that mm-hmm. Christy hangs up flyers at. And it was only in rewatching the beginning of the movie again that I realized she hangs up flyers at two different town directories. And you only notice this if you pause <laughs> and you look really closely at the map on the town directory and there's an arrow that points like a you are here arrow. And in both scenes, it's in a different place. Mm-hmm. So I was like, that's two different directories. Uh, by zeroing in on the directory, looking at the numbers of the locations of the buildings where she, where it says you are here, and seeing if I can match it up to at least nearby buildings in the name, like in the actual numbered directory, and then find those on an actual map, uh, I managed to zero in on the actual locations. And then looking at context clues of the scenes where they're actually on the street, discovering that every single exterior scene in that, whenever they're in town, whenever they're in Stony Brook, Connecticut, (laughs) they are filming in a like four store square. Like they blocked off a block of this row of shops and everything they filmed was within this one town block uh from the from the place where claudia gives the dj the flyer to which is i was like 
well, that could be any nondescript building. But if you look in the background, you see a neon sign hanging up that says newsstand. And I was like, there couldn't have been more than one active newsstand in 1995 Montrose. And so I looked it up and there was the newsstand. Uh, down to the location of the bookstore where there's the cafe outside, and which no longer sadly exists. Mm-hmm. But that I also found because uh, that was actually a famous bookstore that used to have a lot of like readings oh. and stuff. And that's gone. But what I'm saying and that and the directory sign still exists in its actual format. Uh, so if you're in Montrose, California and uh, and you want to uh, oh no, in Glendale, California, sorry, on Mo- uh, in the Montrose area, uh, if you're in Glendale, California and you want to find uh, that sign, it's it's. It's right there. It's it's right there. I'm very. I'm just. I was very excited. I'm actually really impressed because it looks like a much larger diversity of locations than that compressed. Like I shouldn't be impressed by this kind of thing anymore because I, my neighborhood is one that a lot of properties film in because yeah. it can look like many different places. There are a couple sound stages. Uh, I should no longer be like it's amazing that they can film something in such a tight radius, but it is amazing because it is not. <laughs> An area like where I live, it's just like a a town in California, probably a, a good sized town, but a town nonetheless. It's a it's ju- it's a strip mall. It is it's it's like a it's just they went to a strip mall and they filmed close up enough in every shot that you don't a see all the palm trees. Yeah. Uh, and B, uh, it cuts out the names of most of the of the businesses. Even though mm-hmm. if you pause, you can see like names and addresses. Uh, but yeah, they 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 do a pretty good job at keeping it nondescript. But if you know it's California, then it just looks like California. Yeah, that's true. It does make me respect. Not that I don't respect the director, because for this being her first. Uh, the first thing she ever directed. I don't think it's a bad job. I just think it's an untrained job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, no, that I mean, that pleases me. The location scout did a pretty good job finding like this tight area. And I'll have you know that the store holiday hats and gowns that you see Stacy exiting out of the first time you ever see Stacy, mm-hmm. uh, still there. You can and you still... said there's a there's a bar that's still open. There's a bar that's still, yeah. but none of the girls ever actually go into that bar. Well, uh, I would hope not. <laughs> holiday hats and gowns, though, uh, still there in uh, on Honolulu. In no, okay. So here's where I'm getting confused. So it is Montrose, California. I was right about mm-hmm. that. I get confused mm-hmm. because there's an area in Houston where I grew up called Montrose. Oh, okay. So I get all those. I get a location. So Honolulu Avenue in Montrose, California, is where almost all of this stuff was was filmed and if you look at these like all of this stuff all of these shops are within like this little like it's it's amazing that they just they had they, they must have just closed off this street for like one day it's, and shot everything they needed it's impressive i'm, I'm very impressed i yeah i'm genuinely really impressed uh so this movie uh c plus <laughs> yes it's a solid c uh we still haven't given any any attention to the soundtrack which we're going to have to get to that's an episode so i yeah i think you're right i think we now we have talked about this movie we've talked about the movie talked about the movie still can talk about the soundtrack still got to talk about peter's book al singer's book and then maybe we can bring it to a close (laughs) yeah that's my thought uh love the idea of this being a 10 episode (laughs) season it's a a nightmare of an idea 
is it a nightmare or is it a dream or is it a little bit of both? Somebody wanted this and I hope they're happy. <laughs> That's what I say about everything I put out into the world that I get reimbursed for. So should we say goodbye to our friends? I think we should say goodbye to our friends. Uh, if they w- are not ready to say goodbye, they can find us uh, at Pizza Toast Pod on the Twitter and on the Gmail. Hey, that's that's it. That's it. Yeah. That's all I have to say. Okay. Go go there. Goodbye. Goodbye, friends. <laughs>